Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. We're reading from 2 Samuel, chapter 8, page 312 in the Bibles in the Pews. In the course of time, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them, and he took Metheg Amar from the control of the Philistines. David also defeated the Moabites. He made them lie down on the ground and measured them off with a length of cord. Every two lengths of them were put to death, and the third length was allowed to live. So the Moabites became subject to David and brought tribute. Moreover, David fought Hadadezer, son of Rehob, king of Zobar, when he went to restore his control along the Euphrates River. David captured a thousand of his chariots, 7,000 charioteers, and 20,000 foot soldiers. He hamstrung all but a hundred of the chariot horses. When the Arameans of Damascus came to help Hadadezer, king of Zobah, David struck down 22,000 of them. He put garrisons in the Aramean kingdom of Damascus, and the Arameans became subject to him and brought tribute. The Lord gave David victory wherever he went. David took the gold shields that belonged to the officers of Hadadezer and brought them to Jerusalem. From Teba and Berathai, towns that belonged to Hadadezer, David took a great quantity of bronze. When Tou, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated the entire army of Hadadezer, he sent his son Joram to King David to greet him and congratulate him on his victory in battle over Hadadezer, who had been at war with Tou. Joram brought with him articles of silver and gold and bronze. King David dedicated these articles to the Lord as he had done with the silver and gold from all the nations he had subdued, Edom and Moab, the Ammonites and the Philistines, and Amalek. He also dedicated the plunder taken from Hadadezer, son of Rehob, king of Zobah. And David became famous after he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. He put garrisons throughout Edom, and all the Edomites became subject to David. The Lord gave David victory wherever he went. David reigned over all Israel, doing what was just and right for all his people. Joab, son of Zeruiah, was over the army. Jehoshaphat, son of Ahilud, was recorder. Zadok, son of Ahitub, and Ahimelech, son of Abiathar, were priests. Seraiah was secretary, Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, was over the Kerithites and Pelethites, and David's sons were royal advisers. Good evening, it's very good to see you here tonight. Let me add my welcome to Tim's, and as we um, turn back to 2 Samuel, you'll find it a great help to have God's Word open at that reading, page 312 in the Pew Bibles, and you might also find it helpful to have to hand... um, a little uh, summary of where we're going in the next few moments. There's a handout um, stuffed in the bundle you received on the way in that you might find um, useful. Let me pray 
as we turn to God's word. Father, very simply, we ask for your help tonight, for we know we need it. We need your help to understand, to believe your word. We need your help to be changed by your word. I need your help as I speak. And so please, Father, would your spirit be at work amongst us, we pray, for your glory. Amen. There are many ideas about what it would take to put this world right. I know for some people over the next month or so, um, just settling for England winning the World Cup would do it in their world. But sort of on a more serious note, um, others focus on the environment, uh, green power, recycling coffee cups, living responsibly, uh, the fast food delivery company Just Eat um, published last year that um, in 2017, there's been a 987% increase in the number of people ordering vegetarian or, or vegan meals through them, and it seems largely because of a desire to eat more sustainable food. Uh, others focus on politics. If we can just get the right political leaders, the right Brexit strategy, the right NHS funding, the right tax system so that the rich don't become richer and the poor poorer, the right discussions with North Korea and with Russia and between Israel and Iran, and the list goes on. Others focus on security. Today marks the one-year anniversary since the attacks on London Bridge when eight people were killed and 40 or so injured. If only we could secure ourselves from those kinds of evil attacks. What would it take to put this world right? When Jesus taught his people how to pray, he put it this way. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. The coming of God's kingdom is the Bible's answer to what will put this world right. But why, why pray your kingdom come? We, we, cannot, we cannot see God's kingdom. We, we cannot touch it. We can't go to a particular part of the world and say, here is the kingdom. We, we can't even at times visualize what it means to pray that prayer. Why is that prayer what this world needs? We believe Jesus is king of the world now, and yet his reign is contested by so many. We look around the world and we, we just can't see God's kingdom. It seems so small, so insignificant. And so tonight, T. Samuel 8 is going to be very important for us because it shows us what it means for God's kingdom to come. Just as an architect might build a scale model to show and convince their client about what is to come. So here in 2 Samuel 8, we have a scale model of what God's kingdom looks like to persuade us, to convince us, to long for the fullness of that kingdom to come. And in 
the kingdom now under King Jesus who reigns over the worlds. We experience life in the kingdom now, but we long for the fullness of the kingdom to be made known when Christ returns. And 2 Samuel 8 will show us what we are longing for in the future on that day. And so if you like, tonight is a little mini picture, a scale model of how this world will be put right. Back in 2 Samuel 7, just before chapter 8, God made many extraordinary promises to his people. But do you just flip back over one page to 2 Samuel 7 verse 10 to see one particular promise that he makes. The Lord says, And I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked men shall not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning. Wonderful words. Here is God's eternal promise to his people to secure a place for them, a home where they are protected from hassle, from opposition, from from wickedness. It is an eternal promise. And back over the page, 2 Samuel 8, we see here how this home will come about when God's king reigns on his throne, establishing his kingdom forever. Why pray your kingdom come? Well, let's dive into 2 Samuel 8. And you'll see in the handout, our first point is this. God's victorious king secures peace for his people. Verse 1 sets the scene for us. Uh, it begins in the, in the course of time. Uh, in, in other words, th- this chapter is it's not strictly chronological. It's more of a, a summary chapter that records lots of key moments in the life of David, all kind of gathered together to summarize where we've got to under the reign of David. We're seeing what it looks like to live under his reign. And in, in verse 1, it, it means having the Philistines subdued. Verse 2, it meant having the Moabites defeated. In in verse 4, it meant a famous victory over the powerful king Zobah and all his chariots. In verse 6, it meant the allies of the king of Zobah, the Arameans also, them becoming subject to David. And later on in verse 14, so too the Edomites. Now, I I know that our our grasp of um, ancient Near Eastern geography might be a little bit rusty, Um, That's okay. What we've just had described for us is four points of the compass, looking in all directions and seeing in every direction God's enemies subdued and defeated. The Philistines, they were west. Zobah and the Arameans, they were way up north. Moab, they were to the east. Edom, to the south. Every direction you could look in as God's people, from that vantage point under King David's, Every enemy defeated. And so at the end of verse 6, we get a little summary of what's happened. The Lord gave David victory wherever he went. And just in case we missed the point, at the end of verse 14, we find exactly the same summary. Even when the nations conspire together, verse 5, when the Arameans joined forces with the king of Zobah, even then, the alliance comes to nothing. And so this is how the promise back in 2 Samuel 7 
to God's people, a promise of a home, a place of safety and protection. This is how that promise comes about. When you have a king in place who the Lord uses to defeat every enemy. Notice how this peace comes about. It's so important to see this. Not through good politics or or better education or, or recycling, but through the victory of the king. And it has to come through victory because there are enemies of the king and of the kingdom of God. People, nations opposed to him and his reign. And so only through victory can peace be secured for the people of God. God's victorious king secures peace for his people. So what does this ancient model of kingdom life mean for us today, sat here in Sheffield many thousands of years later? Well, it helps us to understand why the death of Jesus is so important. For when King Jesus came into the world, he came to win a famous victory, not with a sword, but rather through dying on the cross. And tonight when we come to share bread and wine in just a few moments, let us remember that at the cross, Jesus won a great and decisive victory over every enemy. And so from the vantage point of the cross, as we look around at our world today, in every direction, every enemy has been defeated. The devil himself, the great accuser of God's people, has been defeated at the cross. Our own personal sin, though it still lingers in us, has been defeated at the cross. And even death itself, that great last enemy, defeated through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so for the Christian, from the vantage point of the cross, we look around and see every enemy defeated in every direction because a famous victory has been won for us by King Jesus. And so please don't mishear me. I'm not against good politics or against recycling. I would love it if England won the World Cup. But none of these things will secure a land of peace and security for God's people. Only God's victorious king can. Tomorrow morning, as we step out into a new week, things may well not feel very peaceful. We might be painfully aware of our own sin still lurking in our hearts, the same lusts, the same self-centeredness, the same prayerlessness, the same lack of love for God and others in our hearts. Maybe it's the the people in the office, our friends, the people on our course with us who who gently but persistently mock us for, for being a Christian. Maybe it's death itself as we discover a diagnosis, as we um, walk with someone facing death themselves this week. There are lots of reasons to feel like we don't live in a kingdom full of peace and protection. The enemies around us feel very real indeed at times. And that is why looking back to 2 Samuel 8, to this ancient kingdom, helps us to believe what is true now for us in King Jesus. That in him we do have victory over every enemy. 
Think of how real those victories were in 2 Samuel 8. These were real chariots, real horses, real fear, real moments of rejoicing after the battle was over. Christian, that is ours in Christ. And it also means that one day, the fullness of Christ's victory will be made known to us in a very real way. For we will live in a real land, free of real enemies, with our king forever. And in that new creation, there'll be no more Monday mornings heading out to face the same battles against sin, the world, and the devil, or even death itself. All because God's victorious king secures peace for his people. Now before we move on, there are some details in T. Samuel 8 that are, well, I guess they're disturbing. In verse 4, it's distressing to read about so many horses being hamstrung. But much more distressing than that is verse 2. David also defeated the Moabites. He made them lie down on the ground and, and measured them off with a line of cord. Every two lengths of them were put to death. And the third length was allowed to live. This... um. It seems so cold-hearted, so calculated. We might wonder, how could we be excited about that kind of king who acts that way? And these are hard words. I don't find them easy to speak about. And yet, we must. The Moabites, in verse 2, had been a constant enemy of God's people, You might remember back in Numbers, the king of Moab trying to get Balaam and his donkey. Remember that story? Trying to get Balaam to curse the people of God because his intent was clear. He wanted to destroy them. Of course, it didn't work because of various things. But throughout the course of the history since then, Moab had been a constant threat to God's people. Living in this country today where we enjoy a remarkable peace, even though we're Christians, I guess we may not feel the terror of living next to an enemy who wants to kill you, but our brothers and sisters in Christ who live in other parts of the world, perhaps in North Korea or Eritrea or Iran or many other places, for them, it's not an abstract thought. For them, they've had to watch loved ones being tortured for their faith and being killed even because of their trust in Christ. And for them they realize how terrible it is to live with an enemy who wants to destroy you. I think they would have a much better understanding of verse two than we perhaps do in this country today. And so when King David defeats the Moabites, he does what is right. In fact, the wonder of verse two is that he let any of them live, a sign of his mercy. And if I can say this as carefully and as gently as I can, the horror of what we see happening in 2 Samuel 8 is only a foretaste of what will happen when King Jesus returns to judge his enemies. We must not write off 2 Samuel as actions of some archaic or out-of-date king For the actions of David are a token of what King Jesus will do 
to his enemies when he returns. We might wonder at the methods of David and his fairness, whether it seems a bit arbitrary or whether a human has the right to make those kinds of decisions. But when the Lord Jesus returns and when he judges, it will be with perfect fairness. It'll be personal and it'll be accurate and no one will be able to claim a miscarriage of judgment. But even as we read those hard words in verse two, we must remember there is a way out before judgment. I wonder if you can remember a famous Moabite S. Her name was Ruth, David's great-grandmother from Moab, but she clung on to the Lord, the God of Naomi, and she went with Naomi up from Moab back to Israel, and she made Naomi's God her God, and in doing so, she escaped the judgment coming on Moab. The Lord graciously gives time for repentance before judgment. It was true for Moab. They had centuries. And it's true today before the Lord returns. And 2 Samuel 8 helps us to believe that God's enemies will be subdued. It will be terrible. But we live in the moment of grace. I think there's a great spur here for us, for those who trust in Christ, to seek to help our friends, our family, our colleagues, as many as we can, to to come and follow us as we follow the Lord. Come and trust in the Lord. He can rescue us before it's too late. God's victorious king secures peace for his people. I guess the example of um, the one king who does survive Verse nine, the king of Hamath, when he hears of David's victories, he's the right response, isn't he? Whatever his motives, whatever his plans, he comes and pays homage to David, brings him gifts through his son. That is the right response to the king of 2 Samuel 8. God's victorious king secures peace for his people. Secondly, God's righteous king reigns for the good of his people. Over the last few years, as we've seen various countries that have changed leadership, it often we discover that the new leader is no better than the old leader. Um, one of the problems with the war in Syria is that no one can agree about what the best leader will be in the future. Um, many are not happy with the current leader, but it's less clear about who would be a better leader of that country in the future. And uh, when we come to 2 Samuel 8, we might wonder the same thing about King David. Here he is defeating lots of kings, lots of other countries, but will he be a better king than the kings he's defeating? And on first impressions, we might be a bit alarmed about the habits of King David. Look at verse 7. David took the gold shields that belonged to the officers of Hadadezer and brought them to Jerusalem. Or again, Verse 8, David took a a great quantity of bronze. Is David simply lining his own pockets, profiting from war to amass a great wealth for himself? Or or in verse 13, we're told he became famous because of his victories over the Edomites. And so as as wealth and fame come flooding into David's courts, we might wonder about David's motives. But we need not worry. Look at verse 11. 
King David dedicated these articles to the Lord as he had done with the silver and gold from all the nations he had subdued. Well, then in uh, verse 12, he also dedicated the plunder taken from Hadadezer, son of Rehob, king of Zobah. You see, David, he's not pursuing these victories for his own sake, but rather for the sake of the Lord's. In other words, he is a righteous king who is there to serve others. And so look at verse 15. David reigned over all Israel, doing what was just and right for all his people. It's a wonderful picture. Justice and righteousness. It's the first time those two words are used in the Bible in that order, but they become a, a summary of the longing of the Bible through the prophets and into the New Testament for a world put right, a place where there's justice and righteousness. It all begins here under David's reign. And don't we long for that kind of leadership? He leads with justice and righteousness. Without naming names, we can look around at our leaders today, both nationally and internationally. It's easy to think of leaders that we just don't trust to lead us well, whether it's through incompetency or through lack of power or just through poor character. We just think the leaders we have are not up to the task of leading as we need them to lead. Tim mentioned two examples this week of leadership changing in this world. We can think of many others. And so when it comes to issues like housing or healthcare, or the gap between the rich and the poor, when it comes to issues like international affairs and trade deals, to be led well is a joy and to be led badly is a disaster. Of course, the struggles that we experience in this country with poor leadership are nothing compared to the people around the world today. Uh, many people live in countries where they have no access to justice at all. Imagine it. If you're wronged, someone robs you. If, if you're raped, there's no one to go to. No one cares. There's no legal system, no recourse, no one to stand up for your cause. It's a terrible thing to live in a world where there's no justice, no righteousness from leadership down. And so when we see a righteous king reigning for the good of the people with, with justice, well, this is very good news indeed. There is an orderliness to David's kingdom. It's, it's well run. I think that's the point of um, verses 15 to 18. The right people doing the right jobs. It's all part of this incredibly positive picture of life in the kingdom. And yet, there are signs all is not well in David's kingdom. Um, he spares some of the horses back in verse four. And if we know kings and horses and chariots, the kings of Israel, they weren't meant to get involved with horses and chariots, but instead to trust in the Lord alone. So we, might, we, we should be worried about David's involvement with horses. And then, right at the end of the chapter, rather mysteriously, we're told, David's sons were royal advisors. Perhaps better, they were priests. You could miss it, but a careful reader of 1 and 2 Samuel should be nervous because we've seen other leaders who've had sons who became priests and it always ended badly. Think of old Eli and his two sons. They were terrible. Think of Samuel and his sons. Again, terrible. And so we're worried what will happen with David and his sons. And we were right to be worried because in a few chapters time, 
indeed his sons, are a cause for great concern. And so as good as David's kingdom is, it is not the perfect kingdom we long for. And um, I want to finish tonight by flicking forward 300 years and 300 pages in our Bible to Isaiah chapter 9. You can see the reference there in the handouts. Isaiah 9, it's on page 693 of the Pew Bibles. Famous words for Christmas, but they are wonderful words for every moment of life. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. 300 years after David and 700 years before Jesus. The prophet says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. As good as David's kingdom was, the kingdom under this king will be far better. We are promised a king who will sit on David's throne, who will reign forever, establishing and upholding the kingdom with justice and righteousness. And we know, don't we, 700 years later, a baby was born. His name was Jesus, the king of the world. A day is coming when King Jesus will return. On that day, the nations will come streaming into his capital city, coming to bring gifts and tributes to this most famous of kings. And the king on that throne will be a good king, a king of righteousness and justice. And on that day, we will know that our broken world has fully, finally, and eternally been put right. Um, But for now, as we wait, may our cry be, your kingdom come. Let me pray. Father, we do thank you so much for your plans for this world, a plan all about your king, your victorious and righteous king. Father, thank you that you have welcomed us in to be part of his kingdom. Please help us to believe that his kingdom is what this world needs. Help us to pray for your kingdom. And help us to be faithful until that day when we are gathered around the throne in glory as part of his eternal kingdom, a world put right. In Jesus' name, amen.